Hello there. Welcome to Positive Changes, a self-kick podcast. I'm your host, Shelley F. Knight. I'm a former nurse and clinical hypnotherapist, term podcaster and author of Positive Changes, a self-kick book and Good Grief, the A to Z approach of modern day grief healing. In each episode, I aim to share my clinical, spiritual, and personal experience to help you feel inspired to create your own positive changes in life. Fear not, it's not just me. Each week, I will bring on a new guest and they will share their authentic story of positive change and the tools that they used on their journey. So if you're ready to be inspired, let's go. I'm reconnecting with DM Needham, who's also known as Dorna, because I previously guested on her show, The Better Two Podcast. Today, Dorna is going to be speaking to you about her journey through emotional eating, which led her down that path. How did we get where we are? I had this little idyllic childhood. My parents seemed to be perfect, da da da. And when they split, my dad went the route of alcohol. And I love my dad. And it's not that he became a hard, you know, sloppy, drunk, my dad became a functioning alcoholic at times. My mother, on the other hand, she prided herself on, and and this is something that you should never say in front of a nine-year-old kid, but she'd pick me up after school and she'd tell me how she ate a whole custard pie and she ate cream puffs and eclairs. So this, you know, when when I can sit here and look and go, so where'd the emotional eating come from? There you go, I mean, neon sign and all. So she basically, would tell me, you know, she'd come, she'd be upset and she'd eat all this. It's like, okay. So this was something that started ingraining in my head as a kid. This is an emotive episode. We do talk about emotional eating, but also anxiety, stress, and grief. All of these messages weave throughout. Come join myself, Donna, and her story now. show I'm joined by the wonderful DM Needham known as Dorna. She is an award-winning author of the gritty realistic novel My Days with the Dark Muse and the romantic suspense novel Love is Worth Waiting For. She's also podcast host of the Better Two podcast and aside from being an award-winning author and a podcast host Dorna has been a bassist, television model, a backup singer, radio personality and she also does intuitive tarot card readings and has mediumship skills. Hello, Dorna. Hello. Hi. Again. <laughs> this You're is once nice. on my show. <laughs> I know. I know. It's just like, I've been very excited. But yes, I think was out, wasn't I, on um, Better Two, mm-hmm. talking back my life. And now you're here about your positive changes. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So I do remember when I was on the Better Two podcast that I was sharing my story and then you would share a bit about your story. And I was just like, wow. So yeah. this was always going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You were kind of like, you know, you can come on my show. So I was like, okay. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah it's like girl you have a story to share so let's dive in okay where should we start so you, want to... Go ahead. you talk really openly don't you well to me you do yeah. about like yeah. your eating so let's, okay. let's talk about you know how that started for you 
how that started was, you know, we, we tend to look at our parents as role models and my dad after, okay, so we'll start with my parents' divorce. That's where really both their worlds. I had this little idyllic childhood. My parents seemed to be perfect, da, 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 da. And when they split, my dad went the route of alcohol. And I love my dad. And it's not that he became a hard, you know, sloppy drunk. My dad became a functioning alcoholic at times. My mother, on the other hand, she prided herself on, and, and this is something that you should never say in front of a nine-year-old kid, but she'd pick me up after school and she'd tell me how she ate a cust whole custard pie and she ate cream puffs and eclairs. So she, this, you know, when I, when I can sit here and look and go, so where'd the emotional eating come from? There you go. I mean, neon sign and all. So she basically would tell me, you know, she'd come, she'd be upset and she'd eat all this. It's like, okay. So this was something that started ingraining in my head as a kid. And it wasn't so much, you know, I wasn't an overeater at this point. I was healthy. I was athletic. And this person that I, I ended up living with my fifth grade teacher for a bit. And when I moved into sixth grade and she was very much, oh, well, you should lose weight. I had a slight gut. I was in fourth grade. I think I was maybe about five foot and I was 90 pounds. I was not fat. But yet at this point, weight starts to become an issue because this teacher of mine, when I hit seventh and eighth grade, I'm still 90 pounds. And she's still telling me, well, because I had a little bit of a gut, well, you're overweight. You should go to the gym. We're going to start going to the gym. And she wasn't even going with me. She just bought me a gym membership. Okay, fine. You would think the stock didn't. So I played sports in seventh and eighth grade, freshman year, ninth grade rolls around. So I'm about 14. And I'm no longer doing sports. I am now on, a, I twirl flags because I'm in New Orleans. So we have Mardi Gras and we, not only do we have games, but I'm an all girls school. So we twirl flags and we march in the parades. So this is about the only outside besides gym class that I'm getting this activity. Otherwise I'm not. I would roller skate occasionally. And the emotional eating, it wasn't so much at this point that it was emotional. It was more like, oh, I'm going to skip lunch. I'll have M&Ms and chips for lunch you know, cause that's real healthy. So as this progresses, by the time we hit seventh or we hit 11th and 12th grade, I'm, I'm having the major breakouts and everything else. And we have moved. So I'm now I have no friends. I'm moving to a different city. I'm, I'm starting to, I'm wearing my mom's hand-me-down clothes. I'm wearing bargain basement jeans and I don't know how, cause now I'm in a public school and now I have boys to deal with. So suddenly it's like, I don't understand how to do any of this. And when I come home crying, my mom's like, I got my own stuff to deal with. Slams the door and it's like, okay. So I would journal, I would try to journal a little bit, but it's like, once again, I'm skipping lunch and it's like, oh, that dollar. So McDonald's has that filet of fish. I can get a filet of fish instead of having school lunch. So I started with, with the filet of fish after school or a you know, bag of candy. And then my first job was McDonald's. So whether anybody will tell you this at the time, you know, at the time when I first started, it's like, oh, okay, everything's good. And I started working drive-through and my manager at the time comes over and she's like, she has this napkin and she has chicken nuggets in it and she stuffs it over here. And she's like, oh, well, yeah, we all do this. Just put some chicken nuggets there and you can have chicken nuggets to snack on while you're working. 
So it wasn't anything that you really consciously thought. It was just something that kind of built up. So by the time I, I'm 180 pounds and which is kind of large, but I mean, it was a size 14, which I don't know if you, that's really equivalent in your world, you know, over in England, but it's, it's the beginning of plus size. So it's, and back then, you know, you went either plus size or you wore women's clothes. They didn't have this in between juniors where you looked cool. So I end up, my mom and I have this major blowout and she basically kicks me out. She invites me to come back home the next day, but she kicks me out. And when she invites me to come back home, I, I've already decided that I'm going to stay living with my friends. I have a place to stay. I, I'm done. So I stay with them. And during this time, we were not eating healthy. We ate fast food. We ate chips every night. We ate, we had soda and Oreos every night. But because I did not have the emotional stress of my mom, I was down to 135 pounds within a year because she wasn't there. So this is a 50 pound weight loss because I'm not dealing with her. So, and it also took my, one of my friends telling me or asking me one day, she goes, why do you say you're sorry all the time? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't do that. She's like, oh yeah, you do. And that consciously made me stop and go, okay. And once I got out of that, it's like everything kind of fell into place. I lost weight. I, I felt good about myself. And then I moved back home. And when I moved back home, I went through a, what some people would call a goth phase at this point. I dyed my hair jet black. I wore all black clothes. And in a small town, this was not, it wasn't technically a small town, but it was a, at the time, Shreveport was very conservative. So people looked at me like, who are you freak? You know, nowadays it would have been perfectly acceptable. Even the punk craze would have been acceptable, but here it was not. So I ended up starting to try to, I wasn't emotionally eating yet, but it was starting to come back. It was starting to gradually come back. By the time I moved, you know, I moved back home, moved back out. I'm moving in, I moved in with a roommate. That still was okay. After I met my first husband and when my mom died, that's when the food and the comfort started taking place because number one, you're nesting. So it's like, oh, I don't have to worry about how I look so much. I'm a mom of two kids. I, instantly, I didn't have kids. I was instantly a mom with two kids. And it was like, okay. And then, so I'm dealing with my grief and I have these two kids, which I love, but it was just kind of those, how do you handle this? So I started eating, I started eating bad things. And, and I mean, this has been a balance. It's like up and down. And I remember, so I left my husband, I ended up losing weight. And I remember going on an audition for a TV show. And I remember this so clearly because I was supposed to go in for an audition time and this other girl was there and she was already a working actress in a play. And she comes in and she's got the black cat suit and she's got the perfect hair and everything. And, and I don't feel so confident. I feel like, okay, I'm trying this. I look okay. I was skinnier than I am now. But it was still, she was perfection. And they're like, oh, she's got to get to her rehearsal. So can she go ahead of you? Sure, no problem. Let me just watch her perform this whole thing. So I did. And I just sat there the whole time going, I don't even know why I'm going to try. Why am I going to do this? So then I ended up doing the, I ended up doing my audition. And I had a blast doing my audition. And on the way home, we have an ice cream company called Ben and Jerry's. 
I don't know if you get you're familiar with Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, I'm nodding okay. away, Donna. Yes, me <laughs> okay. and Ben and Jerry's are friends, been friends for years. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have this thing, they have this flavor called Chubby Hubby, and it has been my go to flavor for a long time. And I remember stopping at the convenience store and picking up a pint of Chubby Hubby and coming home and just eating it without even, you know, eating it in like five, 10 minutes because I wanted that feeling of comfort. And there's been a lot of times as an adult when something has just pushed me to that edge, that is my comfort, is that pint of Ben and Jerry's Chubby Hubby. The reason I bring this up now is so, yeah, I divorced, I remarried. When I, I, so I divorced once, I remarried. But in all this process, I've lost my kids because they were like my kids. Even though they were my steps, they were my kids. So that was a big stress. So I, I binged eat it there. I binge ate there and went to college, got my weight under control somewhat. And then something else would trigger me to overeat. And it wasn't that I was overeating all the time. I met, meet my second husband. My second husband, rest his soul, he loved to cook. You know, I, I had... Um, uh, Yorkshire pudding. I said, I wanted to try it. So he made it, you know, I mean, it was like, if I wanted something or even he would just, he'd love to cook. So it was like, food became a comfort thing. It wasn't just a comfort thing, but it became just, that was, he was, he always told me since the day I met him that he was going to die. He was sick. And that's where kind of all the better two stuff comes in. But because I told him it was better to love him and lose him than never to love him at all. And hence we go on this roller coaster with the podcast and everything. But when I got to the point, even though, you know, after he passed, it was really then the come home, the moment of coming home of realizing there's this anxiety aspect to living with somebody that is terminally ill. And there's this fear aspect of living with somebody that's terminally ill that you don't really think about. You just, you're, you're in this moment living. And so you don't realize that someday, you know, you're at the grocery store and you're like, I need that pint of chubby hubby. So you grab it. And now it's like, since he's gone, you know, I made that conscious choice. It's like, okay, you can eat your grief, which is all that emotional eating, or you can choose to lose weight. So last year after he passed, I joined Weight Watchers and I did it for six months and I lost weight. And I thought to myself, while this is great, this is not sustainable because I'm sorry, you're telling me that chicken and this food has is zero points. I can eat as much of it as I want, but the fact of the matter is it's still caloric. So really, is this sustainable? So I got off. I'm still losing weight. It may not be as quick as I want it, but I had to look at the bigger picture. Do I, you know, as we talked before we got on here, two days ago was his birthday. Emotionally, yes, that was a hard day. And now I suddenly for the last couple of weeks, my go-to for craving for stress is peanut butter. I have no idea why, but so it, it's, I have to wrangle myself back in and, and go, okay, I don't need the chubby hubby. While peanut butter is not the, the healthiest thing, it's also not the worst thing. It doesn't have as much sugar as necessarily the ice cream would. And I have to have looked at things. It's very hard to not want to reach for something when you're stressed. It's something that I've had to learn, get out of, because I, I can't continue when you're sitting there emotionally eating, you're abusing your body. It's not going to bring you comfort. It's no different than the alcoholic. 
It's the person that grabs for something external to make them feel whole. But the process, the problem with the process is it's only a temporary fix. While that ice cream tastes good in that moment, it's gone and you're still left with the feeling. So it's a much different, it's a much less numbing process than if you were to do something like drinking or, or drugs or whatever, because that, that, that feeling is only going to last for a little bit or the other one kind of lingers. Yeah, so. I suppose everyone's got different ideas. Like if I get like stressed and that, I'm the opposite and I don't eat much, like my stomach feels in knots, but I do then sort of like, I'll go and buy something online. <laughs> and so it's but, just, you know, there's always sort of something we, like when we're emotional, I, you know, sure I might like meditate, go for a walk, but you know, sometimes you do just like, you know, go for that ice cream, go for that glass of wine, that online shop, the drugs, you know, maybe sex. We all have different addictions, don't we? Yeah. And I was going to say, and there's times when see, and this is different. If I'm really nervous and anxious about something like something coming up, then yeah, my stomach's in a knot and I can't eat. So there's this really weird balance that if I am stressed and worried, then yeah, I want that. I want something to comfort me. But if I'm nervous, I don't want to eat. So it's a very, a very weird thing because it's like, yeah, my emotions are tied to how I feel I want to eat. So yeah, and I loved what you shared about the anxiety of living on someone who's terminally ill. Because I don't think people talk about it enough, Dawn, if I'm honest. Do you know what I mean? Because you're living there. She said it's beautiful. The whole better to stuff is like better to love me than never love me at all. And um, I love that. But you think it is like any carer, really. You don't. You, don't. you just go through the motions, don't you? Well, the, the really interesting, and I 100% agree, you, you're going through it. The, the really weird thing is when my husband had cardiac bypass surgery back in 2010, his mom had had a massive heart attack the day of our wedding, which was in 2006. So she has a massive heart attack. And we had told her she was going into congestive heart failure like months before our wedding. She has a massive heart attack the day of our wedding. She will not go to the doctor. She is at our wedding. Okay. She was that determined. She ended up having cardiac surgery the next like three days later. Anyway. There's a reason I'm telling you this because at a certain point, my father-in-law, father-in-law and I were doing the same walk. He's sitting at the end of a hospital bed with me. Um, he would go to the nursing home, see his wife, come sit at the end of the hospital bed with me to see John, to visit John. And him and I bonded. He, he would, you know, my husband's like, well, I've never seen my dad joke with anybody other than my mom, like he jokes with you. So we had this whole relationship, but there was one time I actually brought John to the nursing home to see his mom. And I had picked John up from the nursing home. So I'm sitting, we're sitting at this table with four people and it's like Georgia and Rit or Georgia and John are here. And my father-in-law is sitting across from me and I'm sitting there in that moment. It's not lost to me that him and I are walking the same path. And no, you don't. Under, I mean, I didn't even understand. It was my primary care doctor that actually said to me going after John passed because she was his doctor as well. She's like, do you realize the amount of anxiety and stress you've been under? And I didn't. And, it, and, and quite honestly, I didn't realize the fear component truly until like the last month. And he's been gone a year and three months. And it, I realized that I am still living in this underlying current of fear you don't think about that you don't it becomes your norm so it's like trying to figure out and dissect and, and dare I say slice away 
what is not needed in your life anymore after going through this. It's like, I was this person before I met him and I understand you change and I understand you grow because we had 16 years, but there's certain points of it, the anxiety, the stress, the fear that does not need to be there anymore. So it's trying to unlearn that and not emotionally eat. That is a trick. That's really interesting. So if you know there's like nothing to fear, we start to come around to the idea that you know, there's no point being fearful. What is it that you have been fearing up to this point? Well, I mean, now the fear is, okay, so what does life look like now? What does life look like going forward? I mean, that's, that's the underlying fear now. But I think what it is, is the culmination of all this other fear that I've been dealing with for years that I'd never really thought about. And the funny thing is, when I say I'd never really thought about it, the whole fact is the reason I started the Better Two podcast was because in 2020, there was a guy who did a podcast talking about fear every day for 365 days. He had a person come on his show and this podcast no longer exists. He only did it for one year. And every there was a different story for every person. And my fear was losing my husband. And even though I verbalized it in this podcast, I didn't really acknowledge it. It, like I said, it took me like the last few weeks. It's just all of a sudden it's like, do you realize you're still living in this place of fear? which is not healthy. I think we do, don't we? I think mm -hmm. I, I used to have this great fear of the unknown. And then sort of like, I had a, I think what I spoke about on your podcast was like my daisy journey, like, you know, going through all that infertility, which she's made it in the end sort of thing. And I used to have a fear of the unknown, like would this baby come to fruition? I used to have a fear about with this money coming and all these kind of things. And I, I don't think it can just be me, Dawn. I'm sure from the pandemic, there's loads of us just thinking, oh, we didn't see that coming. And you get, for me, I feel a little bit less fearful just because it was a real slap in the face that we really haven't got a clue, have we? No. Well, I mean, you know, when you experience death normally, and this has been a big thing. So year, year and three months, if he would have died under a normal situation and he didn't die because of COVID, that had nothing to do with his death. It was a long-term illness. But if he would have died under a normal situation, there would have been people at the hospital with me. I had one friend show up the day I took him off life support, but he was gone by the time I took him off life support. So there was nobody there at the hospital. There was nobody at the hospital at his bedside when he passed and that's okay because he didn't want anybody there. But, and that's even a whole nother weird story because I, my anxiety was really high and I had woken up and I was exhausted. And I'm like, I'll go to the hospital later. I'll be okay. And I took a Xanax and like 30 minutes after I took the Xanax, they called me to tell me he passed. So it was like somehow ultimately the universe or intuition knew that you need to do this. But my point is, so normally you would go, okay, so now we're going to have the funeral. We're going to have the, we're going to have the wake. We're going to have the funeral. We'll have the memorial, whatever you're going to do. It's done. And with COVID, you can't do that. At least, you know, when he died, you couldn't do that. So here we are. And I've, I finally, this past week, I finally wrote a letter to his friends and said, I'm not doing it. I can't do it. When I move to my new house, I'll plant a tree and I'll, I'll do something then, but I can't go and sit and have a, a party 
celebrating his life because it's going to gut me because what happens is, and I don't think people realize this, what happens is all his friends are going to come in, they're going to talk and they're going to reminisce and then they're going to go home to their families. And I get to come back home to my home that I shared with him and he's not here and there's nobody here for me. So then what? So I just, I finally just admitted and people could think I'm bad because of that. I love and miss him every day, but I can't sit here and, and just go, okay, I'll be fine. It's not fair to me. And I have to, at a certain point, you have to take care of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. And I think more people should be more Donna, really. I think, you know, we have this whole sort of thing that, you know, you have to have the funeral and then you have to come back for sandwiches and pleasantries. And, you know, for some people, it's lovely. They, you know, I suppose it depends who's died. But for some people, they love the reminiscing, learning parts of, you know, their loved one they didn't know about. And I know a lot of my friends have got comfort from that, like learning like the naughty bits of life that they didn't tell you as a parent and things like that. Yeah. But for yourself, when it's your partner and then you're coming back to the home, I totally get that self-preservation. I think if it would have happened, if we would have done it last, you know, June of 2020, it would have been easier to handle because I was still headlong into that grief. But a year and three months later, it's kind of just like, do you really want to put yourself back? And then, I mean, I have enough of that. I can sit here and, I mean, to top it all off, he, he died three times. And the first time he died was in the car with me. So I watched him die. I don't want to go back there for a long, it took me about three or four months before I got that visual out of my head. So I don't want to go back there because, you know, ultimately what's going to happen if I go walk into this, this situation, somebody's going to say, well, tell me exactly how all this happened. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go there. I can talk to you slightly about it, but I'm not going to go there over and over. So. No, and I love that. I think, you know, we had lovely guests coming on being really like authentic about their grief but everyone's done it differently and that is what grief is isn't it it's just like mm. dealing with it however you want so if you want to sit there and think right I'm never going to get over it that's my life try it <laughs> you know if you want to try alternative therapies and holistic things you know like the Reiki the Ascended Masters mediumship mother nature fabulous but it's finding what's right for you and I think we're so I don't know if we're guilty I think we're so manipulated that sounds a really harsh word but driven by others maybe you know that we should have a wake that we should invite them back that we should do this and it's just like recently I've let go of a lot of shoulds <laughs> you have to you have to you really do and and the thing about it is people also assume that grief is linear that you're going to hit this mark and I remember one of my friends asking me because up until that year mark I was always like okay it's eight months and even I said it was a year and three months but I don't say it as often, but my friend was like, why do you say that? I said, she's like, are you counting? What are you marking? I said, I'm marking the fact that I've made it this far. That's what it is. You don't consciously do it. You just subconsciously do it because it's like, you're not thinking. It's just like, it comes to mind that, wow. Okay. Yeah. It's been, it's been this many months and I've survived because you have survived this loss, whether it be a child, whether it be your spouse, these are losses that it's one thing to lose a friend and, and a friend is, is close and everything. But when you lose somebody that is that close and, and everyday part of your life, you have to step back and you look at it and go, okay, I made it. I, I, I've survived this long because sometimes it feels like you're not going to survive it. And I know, you know, that from your own experience and what you've gone through. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. 
So true. So what I love about this, well, just because it's your story and I love you, but that aside, <laughs> what I love is when you talk about the emotional eating, like the triggers, sort of like the, the divorce and then like the person you live with and stuff like that, you almost sound like you're a work in progress. You're like, you know, you still have these choices and things like that. So what tips and tools do you use? I know, I know you swapped out ice cream for peanut butter, but what sort of other tools do you use to sort of, you know, bring that awareness up that you are about to emotionally eat? Um, I've gotten to the point of trying to, dare I say, let go. I also have to look at, I mean, I journal and I try to reframe things. I have to reframe my thinking. The one thing, you know, I, I'm not touting my podcast, but I have to say having people come on my podcast, and I know you've done this too, because it's like, while we do this so other people can get information, we've learned things from our guests. And one thing that I, that I think was great, one person that came on that I think was great was he was talking about expectations. And, and it's just, I've talked to several people now, but it, that was the moment where it kind of made me think, okay. And the fact is, if we can get our stress under control because we're not sitting there expecting somebody to do something or act a certain way, that lowers that stress level. You know, it, it goes back to, yeah, accepting that sometimes we can't control everything. And I think that's, you have to look at, don't let the outside stressors get to you. Don't let the anxiety build up in you. And you have to really sit there and think about what am I doing to my body? What is the ultimate thing? You know, when I'm in my thirties, sure. I can eat a pint of chubby hubby, no big deal. I'm not that young anymore. And I have to make those conscious choices that if you're going to go overeat, go eat some grapes, go eat a car some carrots, do something healthier you know, make some popcorn, you know, do something that is not so bad for you, but try to, try to reframe your thought. That's the biggest thing is reframing your thought, write your emotions down. Don't be scared to cry. If you need to cry, cry. If you need to yell, yell, people may think you're insane, but <laughs> get the emotion out. You know, it's not good that I think that's why we tend to emotionally because we're not, we're not dealing with what we want to deal with we're just tapping it down and back to shopping whatever whatever the addiction is and and the thing is we're talking about addiction the one addiction that people don't really want to admit to is the addiction of that drama that we've we've grown up with that we're used to that feeling of drama that something can trigger that feeling and it's like oh i know what this is and you embrace it and that starts making you go back down into your cycles of of self negative self-talk and everything else so you have to try to step back from that because nobody ever looks at past trauma as an addiction but it's something that's comfortable even though it's not comfortable it's comfortable like like the bottle of alcohol or the food it's something that is comfortable that you know you can resonate with if that makes sense yeah i know it does I was sort of like nodding along because i was just thinking like you do get those i call them like adrenaline seekers and, mm -hmm. you know, it is a comfort because, you know, if, even if like some of us will look back and think, oh, my God, like, how can you want to go back there? But, you know, people do want to go back to that familiar feeling. It doesn't mean it was a good feeling, but it is that adrenaline seeker, that sort of like resonance they recognize. How many friends have you had in your life that you're like, oh, it felt like I just, you know, when you meet them, it clicks just like that. And you're like, wow, I feel like I've known you forever. And then as a year or six months, I mean, it depends on 
when you're young, it takes a longer time to recognize it. But when you're young, when you're older, it's like, oh, I recognize this. But it's like, oh, they remind me of such and such. And that ended terribly bad. But it takes you a while to recognize that that's what that is. It's that that feeling of, oh, I'm familiar with this. So, okay, I'll take that on. And you, you just, yeah. No, I, I do I get it a lot. And our um, our eldest son, he's got ADHD. And so, you know, and he's got autism as well. So a lot of things like when we're trying to wind the children down at the end of the day and it's all relaxing to him, that's boring <laughs> and he mm-hmm. doesn't like it. So then he's not so much now. He's gorgeous now. But like, like in the tween ages before we got to teenage years, like it was hellish at night time. We had sensory lamps. We now had like every fabric kind of we could have in his room but he would just crave that adrenaline and he would just start to escalate and find a fight and you know just yeah. start nonsense conversations to trigger us because he just liked that sort of feeling alive to him to me it was stressful and I just wanted to go to bed but <laughs> it is that kind of seeking some adventure all the time but life's not like that is it he does have these calmer moments but I see it in my son or saw it in my son he's totally different now that some people just like that certain level of hyperactivity, I, you know. I, I, the, I think what really made me see it too, besides my own stuff, was when I was doing readings for people. I would sit there and do readings and it's like, it came to me, it's like, this is your addiction. It's like somebody comes in, they trip you up, they trigger you and you're like, all okay about it. And then you're sitting there, you know, a little bit later, you're like, why did I do this? Well, because you res- it resonates with you. I mean, it's just something, you know, I, I have an, a friend that came back several times over and I finally, I will not ever associate with this person again, if I can help it, but you know, she would come back out of the blue for no reason. It's just like, uh-uh, I've been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, not happening again. We're not going that route. Uh-uh, done. And you just, you have to get to a point where you realize that because yeah. that, that definitely helps. Yeah. That was me recently. I got all feisty, even in my newsletter. I was just sort of like, you know, <laughs> we're always changing. If you don't want to make a positive change or invest in the podcast yourself, life, just unsubscribe. Um, no one did. No one. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just sort of like, I got, you know, a big Facebook call, stopped contacting people. I thought I should to keep up the communication because they'd been there in the past. And I let go of those shoulds and the expectations. And bless, you know, God rest his soul, my late um, stepfather, Badger, he used to always say, like, never have expectations in life and you'll never be disappointed. And it was one of the chapters from my first book, Positive Change Yourself Kick Book. And it's really helped me. It took me a good 40 odd years to listen to the words. Well, that's the thing. I mean, when we're younger, <laughs> let's think about it. Our, our parents, step parents, whatever, will tell us these things. And we're like, oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. The truth is, when you look back, you're like, oh, yeah, they may have had a point there. <laughs> it was like, literally. Yeah. But to be, in my defense, he was quite slow and did that a lot in life. So really that, you know, I've just got the message in his kind of time and pacing. <laughs> <laughs> but you got the message and that's the important yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And it was at Badger Speed. That was his name, Badger. <laughs> so I love that. So you do journaling. And I said recently on the podcast that journaling comes up so much and it doesn't matter what people, you know, coming on about the positive change whether it's like grief addiction childhood drama you know career changes it always comes back to journaling 
but what I love is like so many of the people that journal are also authors <laughs> well here here here's something funny so and this deals with journaling my book my days with dark muse is actually written from written in a journal form from a drugged out rock star a drugged out male rock star so yeah even in fiction land I was journaling so yeah that's why I just when you were saying journaling yeah I, I guess I married the two and the funny thing about that is I originally was a blog that I had online and I had rehab centers following me and liking the blog posts and I'm thinking to myself are you guys really thinking that this guy's real because he's not that's when I decided you know what turn it into a book yeah. <laughs> I love that so aside from journeying what tips and tools or positive changes could people make today you know if they are struggling with like anxiety stress or emotional eating what one thing could they do my best advice for anybody if i if i'm going to be true besides journaling and, and self-care would be get a therapist and i mean i'm not talking to your best friend because your best friend is great they're going to talk to you but a therapist will actually help you reframe things um i i the one thing my mom did right with all this you know when they divorced well, she got me a therapist. And so at nine years old, I had a therapist and it taught me that talking to somebody in a clinical way, a professional way is not a bad thing. It helps you reframe things because your best friend, your best mate is going to sit there and go, yeah, he was rotten. He was this. They're not going to give you this. Okay. Let's look at this. Let's unpack this. Why was the situation this way? Can we reframe the thought? Was it your expectations? Did he have, you know, they can look at it from a diverse big picture where your best friend is going to be like, yeah, you know, I am all there for you. Let's go. No, you need somebody that's going to really unpack things. So, I mean, while you can do it journaling, but this is the, this is a better way, I think, but. I find it so refreshing. We're now in season three and so many of my guests are American and you all just seem to be far more open about talking therapies and therapists like over here like I've had friends and they'll be oh yeah I've been going to a therapist for two years Shelley have you <laughs> you know yeah whereas over there and on the podcast again like we make these wonderful connections people will just say oh you know the one thing would be like yeah get a therapist and they'll be I like guess- funeral directors everything they're just they're really open it's well, it's taken a long time because for a long time there was still the connotation that if you went to therapy, you were you must be crazy. And and I have to say, you'll have this is a funny story you'll appreciate. It goes back to the emotional eating. So my husband, um, his parents were sick, and I kept telling him, You need to come to therapy with me. And he's like, No, I don't want to get a therapy. I'm like, you need to come to therapy with me. Cause I knew when they died, it was gonna be this big deal. Cause he had siblings and everything. So he's like, No, no, no. So one day he was in the car with me and I was going to go to my therapist and he's like I'll go to therapy if you buy me a fish sandwich I'm like fine so I bought him a fish sandwich and he went to therapy with me and after all was said and done and we had finished with his parents stuff and we he said to me and he said to the therapist he's like the best thing I could have done was come to therapy because I could not have handled everything so That's amazing. I, I love the fish sandwich bit. That was brilliant. But I must say, like, for him to then say, like, fish sandwich aside, that's the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. I wish he would have done a little bit more before he passed. But he, at that point, we were doing it on the phone and he was just kind of like, I'm just going to go to bed for a while. I'm like, all right. 
so he wasn't really into talking so much then but how what it, what's the answer there i mean you're at the, you're facing the end of your life there's not really a lot to talk in therapy about so yeah. oh. i've absolutely loved this dawn i knew i would because i love you but it's oh, just so so much because obviously i knew about like the amount of grief you've been through from having been on better two podcasts but I just think it's so helpful. I really do, because it's not just about emotional eaters, the anxiety and the story behind that and the stress and the grief and the childhood, you know. So thank you so much for sharing today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you. Oh, bless you. I appreciate you. I just think it's so valuable. So thank you for being here today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure you subscribe and leave a positive review. If you would like to create your own positive changes, you can buy Positive Changes, a self-kickbook from all online book retailers or from ShellyFKnight.com. If you need a dollop of positivity until the next episode, come like and follow us over on Facebook at Shelley F. Knight. Life Goes On. As always, I've been Shelley F. Knight and you've been amazing.